0: Father, we thank You for this time together this morning. God, we do invite You to speak to us. We ask You to open up the eyes of our hearts that we might receive. And Lord, for those who need to know You in a real and personal way today, I pray, God, that You would make it so evident that they are overwhelmed by Your grace and Your power and Your truth. God, for those of us who are believers, I pray that You would draw us towards You. And Lord, that we'd open our eyes to the needs around us. God, encourage and strengthen us and empower us that we might bring you glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And as we look at this subject of discovering and knowing who God really is, it was interesting, there was a British study done this past year, and uh, they surveyed and they asked people. They, in fact, they literally went, did old school. They went to the door and knocked on people's door so they could have a personal response. And uh, they asked people what their concept of God was. And uh, they ended up uh, writing this book based on a response of what one of the gentlemen gave because they found this was the overwhelming theme and understanding of who God was for most people. Uh, they asked several questions such as, do you believe that God transcends our world, that He interacts with human beings today, that He leads and guides and directs? Do you believe that uh, He still, uh, He still performs miracles, uh, when it is His privy and according to His glory? Uh, do you believe, uh, that He has impact in your life and in the world today? Do you believe He has the power to change things? And this one gentleman, uh, when they started off early on, said, no, I just believe in the ordinary God. And as they investigated, it was one, I believe that there's a God, but I don't necessarily believe He has anything to do with what goes on in our lives today. And matter of fact, there, uh, there was another study done here by Scott Collins uh, another study done, and what they found, what he found, were, you know, there really were very few people who were atheists. There, uh, only about one to two percent of the people, when he said, "Is there absolutely no God at all?" Only one to two percent people said that. Uh, there were another ten percent that would say they were agnostic, that uh, there probably uh, could possibly be a God, but you can't prove it, and so there's, it doesn't really matter; it's irrelevant. What they found, though, were that the majority of Americans fit into this model. Of who they believed God was. It was called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral for the sense that uh, God uh, does ex- probably does exist. And he does want you to be good. And that God therapeutically wants you to be happy. But deism or a deist in the fact that uh, he's not really involved. He doesn't really uh, necessarily intervene. He has created the world. And set it like a, much like a clock, and it is now ticking toward the end. But he has removed himself, or if he has not removed himself, he lacks the power to be involved and to change things. So God wants you to be good, he wants you to be happy, but it's much like a parent who sends their child off for college. Do well, have a good time, and I'm going to hope for the best. <laughs> That's kind of the concept of God for most of people today. And we'll see that that was somewhat the concept that we'll see today uh, by the culture of the Old Testament. Many people took that same mindset, except maybe they viewed him a little bit more negatively. But they had a way that they believed that he should respond, the way that he would respond. And we'll see a character named Naaman who definitely have some very strong opinions about how God should respond and how you get God to respond the way that you desire. And He's not that different than mankind today. Let me give you some facts about God just to begin with so we're all on the same page. Facts about God and His purposes. First of all, the Holy Spirit is constantly drawing people toward God. That's just a fact as we look at it as believers in Christ. God can use anybody to accomplish His purposes. And we'll see that's true in our passage today. And the grace and power of God cannot be bought or manipulated. We still think if we do the right things and push the right right buttons, we can manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. Maybe if we get mad enough at Him. Maybe if we do enough good things, He'll do what we want Him to do. But can I tell you this? We've talked about this before. One of the ways that we know for a fact... that we are worshiping the true God, is because he doesn't respond like we would respond. He doesn't do what we would do. He doesn't say what we would say. And we look at Old Testament passages in particular, and many times we'll think, well, I don't like that. I don't like the Old Testament God. I think I'll take the New Testament God. By the way, it's the same God. Okay, He's not changed or gone anywhere. But sometimes we'll think, I don't like that one. I think I'll take this one. We think it's like the Piccadilly. I don't know if you remember what that is. Uh, Lubies, maybe you don't remember what that is either. Where we just kind of go in and make the choices. But see, to do that reduces God to our imagination. To our own set of therapeutic slash moralistic uh, kind of concepts of who and what we think God should be. Matter of fact, the hindrances to knowing God first begin with our pride, that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is who God's supposed to be. And I mean, if I were God, this is the way I would do things. Which again, if you ever wondered, do you have kind of a figment of your imagination or an idol that you've built up in your mind? If he's always doing what you would do, that's not a good sign. Because you're not God. Okay? So his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His concepts are not your concepts. His plan is not your plan. Also, the whole power issue. We want to control him. We want to control how he acts and how he responds. And we think if we have enough power, <clears throat> then that will somehow cause God to do what we need him to do and respond like we want him to respond. And then our opinions fly in there. Well, this is my opinion of who I think God is. This is the opinion of what I think God should be and what he should do. And there's simply that there are opinions. Thus, we come up with the moral, therapeutic deism. Now, we're going to look at a few key characters in this passage today. Elisha, the first one. Uh, Elisha was the prophet who took over after Elijah. Fortunately for you, we have a picture of him today here, Uh, even though this was about 9,000 B.C. um, But he was a prophet of God. Primarily, the way that people heard God and heard the Word of God in, in this particular time, uh, was through his prophets now there would have been a very, very limited uh recording of the Torah for the most part it was learned orally, so usually it was the word of God was given through the prophets and elisha elisha of his time is the leader of the prophet he 's the spokesman for God, and he 's the leader of the prophets of israel now on the on the contrast there 's a guy named joram he 's the king of Israel at this time, and uh, he would be the one in the back. And um, he is uh, <clears throat> not a good guy. His parents, well, he had terrible parenting. It, it didn't help him at all. It was Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, yeah, probably, arguably, the, the worst parents in biblical history. And uh, if you want to go back and read about Jezebel, she killed the prophets of God. She was constantly trying to kill Elijah. She was bringing in the false gods. It, it was just a bad deal. And Ahab, you know, being the great husband that he was, okay, dear, uh, whatever you need to do. And so it, there was a lot of corruption, uh, a lot of problems there, and that, that that was his father, and that was his mother, and that was kind of his example. He's the king, he's not a man of faith, matter of fact, he is uh, usually in opposition to elisha. elisha speaks out against him multiple times, and he's driven by his own opinions and his pride so that's Uh, That is the king of Israel at this time. Now, there's two other individuals that we're going to more closely look at today. And the the next one is a a servant girl. We don't have a name for her, uh, but she's a young girl. And we know from the way the Hebrew is written that she is under the age of 15. She's 14 or younger uh, because of the way the word is written. She's a child. So she's probably somewhere around 12 or 13 years old. And she's young. She's an Israelite. She's been taken in a raid. And uh, she's a slave. To Naaman's wife, and she's taken away from her family and home, but we also know she is a young lady, a, a little girl of great faith. She still believes in Yahweh God and His power, and we'll see that in a moment. And then lastly, we have Naaman. Naaman, uh, you've heard the story of the, the general, the commander who dips himself seven times. He's a great man. He's a hero for the Syrian army and for the Syrian people. He's popular, respected. He's also very wealthy. He's a brave wa- warrior. But then we come to this one phrase, he's a leper. I mean, you're looking at that and you're thinking, I want to be that guy. No, I don't. He's a leper. Now, we could get into debates about what kind of leprosy uh, he had, and there were numerous types. Uh, There are two prominent types. But nevertheless, we know this, that he has a skin disease, and we know that it's not good, that it's spreading, and that at a bare minimum, there is great fear from that culture to the point at some point you will be ostracized and you will be putting, putting out of the community. So he's at the epicenter of the community right now, of the world. He has the power, the authority, the wealth, the prestige, but he has leprosy. And that's not a good thing. And so he decides, and we can see this from some of the background, he decides, so to speak, to get religion. He probably at first goes to his gods, his local gods there, and nothing's happening. Nothing's helped. He's gone to the prophets and the priests, the idols. Nothing has worked. And he recognizes, hey, this is starting to spread. This is not a good thing. And he hears from his wife, who has a little girl, it's the servant girl that we noticed earlier, that, you know, there's someone who can heal you. And so he's going to show up in all of his wealth and all of his power to buy, to, manip- to manipulate, to intimidate, so to speak, his way into healing. If this God can do it, I'll put on a show for him. I'll do whatever is necessary. And so he approaches God with his opinions, his thoughts. He approaches Elisha with his ways and his attitude, his power. And of course, he is disappointed in the response he receives. Because he's responded, as a man going after religion, I'm going to get religion. I'll be good. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll buy it. I'll pay for it. And I'm going to get it. And I'll be healed. But it just doesn't work that way, does it? He doesn't really see his need. He doesn't humble himself. He doesn't come as one who's recognizing his need. You know, the truth of it is, we all come to God by different methods, but primarily it's usually something of this nature. We usually recognize, hey, our family has grown up this way and we've heard the message and we uh, come to the point where we say, you know, this is going to be our faith. Sometimes it's a friend who shares with us. Or we're like Naaman, we have a need. There's a need in our life and there are some things that need to change in my life. And we decide, you know what? Through, through that need we're going to seek and we're going to find. And sometimes it's through a revelation that God gives some. We had a, a gentleman a couple of years ago, or a year ago, stand here and talk about, uh, as a Muslim, how God revealed himself to him. And sometimes it happens that way. But typically it's through family, friends, or need. And what does that mean once we come, we reckon? it. Well, it means to experience God, first of all, we have to recognize our need. That we need God and we cannot save ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. We recognize we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. And we believe and we surrender to Him. And we transfer our faith to God. Let's see this story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is Syria, was a great man in the master's sight. Highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, it's interesting that you see that that uh, that phraseology right there. It says that he was a great man in his master's sight. Highly regarded. He's wealthy. He's powerful. And the Lord has given victory to Aram. Remember, Aram, again, Syria as we call it today, that's actually uh, at best uh, an adversarial neighbor. And at worst, they're at, they're at war. It's their enemy. And so God has used Aram to chastise Israel. We talked about how the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel had killed the prophets of God. We talk about uh, how uh, Joram has not followed God and the people have become wicked. And God has used Aram as an instrument of punishment, of discipline. So we see it right here. So he's a man who's a brave warrior, and he has a skin disease. Aram has gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. So Naaman and his warriors have been attacking bordering towns in Israel. And some of those border towns, they would take the wealth, and sometimes they would take slaves. And this little girl, this 12, 13, 14-year-old girl, has been taken As a slave. If there's anybody that's wishing and hoping that this this skin disease, this leprosy, will overtake him and cause him to die a slow, brutal death, it should be this little girl. This little girl who every night is sleeping not in her bed, but in the bed of a master. In the bed of someone who has made her her slave. In a foreign country. In a country where her God is not worshipped. Her friends and family are gone. But what happens here? She says to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. She still believes in the power of Yahweh God and his prophet. And so Naaman went and told the master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And therefore the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. You know, there must be something about this little girl that they notice is reputable. Because, I mean, how many of you are 12 or 13 year old? Yeah, you need to you need to go over to, uh, you need to go to South America and you can get healed there. We'd go, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Junior. But there's something about this little girl's word. There's something about her integrity. There's something about her spirit that makes them believe it. Yes, he's certainly in need. But to go into enemy territory and to humble himself in this matter is quite an act. And so the Bible says, as we continue, so the king says, and the king believes that. you know what? I'm going to send a letter. And here's what we're going to do. We want you to take 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 changes of clothes and take this letter with you. Now, this is an enormous amount of money. Some scholars say it's as much as 25 to 30% of the net worth of the whole Syrian army and the whole Syrian government at this point. So it's a huge amount of money at this time. And when the letter comes to you, note as he sent this to the king, I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease, of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter... He tore his clothes and asked, am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure this man of his skin disease? Think it over and you will see that he is only picking a fight with me. Now, this is Joram, king of Israel. Remember, he's not a man of faith. He's had an adversary relationship with Elisha. He receives this letter and this letter says, look, I'm sending my commander, my general to you. I want you to heal him. And so the king receives that and he tears his clothes, which was a sign of severe anxiety. It was a a symbol of deep grief and regret. He is in mental anguish because he looks at this and he even says, he's seeking war upon us. He's going to come and to attack us and there's nothing I can do. And he's starting it by sending this letter and saying, I need you to heal my general. So he literally tears his clothes. But the Bible says, Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes. And he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He receives that letter and he said, send him me. And so Naaman travels a great distance to come to the house of Elisha in Samaria. He gets there and Naaman comes with his chariots, his kind of his soldiers. He comes in his wealth, in his dress, probably in his military outfit. He comes with his wealth and he comes before what would be a meager house here in the greater Samaritan area. Where Elisha lives. And the Bible says that Elisha sent his messenger and said, Go wash in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and, and you will be clean. I want you to take, uh, take yourself and go down to the Jordan River and cleanse yourself. Wash yourself seven times. Now... What we don't see in the text that sometimes I think maybe we've gotten the wrong image, you know, in the pictures we grew up as children, we see, okay, here's here's Naaman, and, you know, here's the river right here. It's kind of right next to him. Just jump in there seven times. But in fact, scholars tell us they were probably somewhere between 20 and 30 miles away from the Jordan River. So he's going to have to travel at least a day, maybe two days' journey to get to the Jordan River. So he hears this. And he hears, you want me to go and wash myself seven times in this river? Is this simply an act of ritual cleansing before you'll talk to me? And Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself. And I think that's a key phrase right there. I'm telling myself. This is how God works. I'm telling myself. He will surely come out, stand, and call on the name of Yahweh, wave his hand, and cure my disease. That's the way it's going to work. And Naaman is so angry because it's not working the way he wants it to. You see, Naaman had been in a pagan culture, and the way that typically the whole God thing worked was, it was an extension of your culture, it was an extension of your government, it was an extension of your king. So the king ultimately was in charge, and at best he was appointed by this God, but usually he was controlled by the God. And so if you gave money to the prophets, if you gave money to the temple, in fact, you were giving money to the king. You were buying the king's favor. That's the way it works. I'm an insider. I know how this all works. That's why they approached the king to begin with. And so now the king has told him, just go, to, go on over here to the guy who can do it. My, my prophet, so to speak. The prophet of Israel. And so he goes there and he thinks it's going to work. He shows up. Look, I'm somebody. I've got the resume. I've got the reputation. This is who I am. Now, what I'd like for you to do is heal me. But he didn't even get that far. He comes to the door, and certainly they would have heard him coming. The, the servants would have told him, look, Naaman's out there. You knew he was coming. He's here. And he showed up with a big entourage. He's got his army out there. He's in a chariot. He's dressed. He's got a boatload of money. This is great. And Elisha says, uh, send him 25 miles down the road and tell him to dip in the Jordan seven times. And what does Naaman do? What? Are you crazy? Do you know how far I've come? I'm ready. Do you know how much money I have? Do you know what i do? do you know what I could do to you right now? And he says, "You know, I thought surely you'd come out and wave your hand. That's the way they do it back home. That's the way the magicians do it. That's the way they do it. Wave your hand, and then I'll be healed. Tell me to do that. I've got rivers back home. They're much cleaner and nicer." He just wanted me to take a bath and get all cleaned up before I saw him. I could have done that. And he's insulted because it's not the way he would have done it. It's not the way it's supposed to work. This is not what. This is not how it's supposed to operate. You ever think that? God, this is not the way it's supposed to work. God, I, I have been faithful to you. I have been praying. I have been coming to church. I even help. And this is the thanks I get. God, I, I don't know that I can do this anymore. Matter of fact, I'm mad I quit. I don't like it. I don't like the music they do. I don't like where they make me sit sometimes. Is that's the thanks I get for worshiping you? Maybe we're not that much different sometimes. <laughs> but they were real primitive back then. Aren't a man and far the rivers of Damascus better? There are nicer rivers I could have gone to. And they're on my way home. Thank you very much. This is out of my way. And I don't even have a car. i got all these people with me. This is ridiculous. I'm so embarrassed I'm leaving. Could I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and left in rage. How did he get here to begin with? A servant girl. Now, who is going to speak forth the truth and who's going to redirect him? Servants. Isn't it interesting? It's the suffering servant who has provided salvation for us. And the servants here, it's a typology, it's a foreshadowing of the ultimate servant who would come and die in our place. And the Bible says his servants approached him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Well, yeah, that's why I brought my military with me. So I brought my chariots with me. That's why I brought the money. If he had said, you know what, I got some enemies. I got some people over there. They've been bothering me. They've been taking my sheep. They call me names. I want you to go and get rid of them. Absolutely. I'll take care of it right away. That's the way a lot of times it would work. Go get rid of my enemies. But he, he doesn't do that. Go, I want you to go and get this precious stone or this precious I want you to go and get back my property. I want you to go and get, I want you to go and do this. Do some great thing for me. Go and win a battle for me. But he doesn't do that. How much more should you do if he tells you to wash and be clean? So you're going to have to make the trek in the opposite direction. You're going to have to go into Samaria. And so Naaman went down. He takes the trip. He dips himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. And then his skin was restored and he became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. He wasn't just healed, he was cleansed. And you'll notice every time Jesus heals someone of leprosy, he uses that word, you're cleansed. You see this salvific salvificate nature. I mean, we see that Naaman is now transformed because the Bible says that Naaman and his whole company went back. They make the journey back. They could have just headed straight north. It would have been closer and quicker. But there's a transformation of heart in Naaman at this point. And his whole company, they all go back to the man of God and they stood before him. And they, Naaman makes an incredible declaration. It's one of the best examples, uh, particularly of anyone, but particularly uh, of someone who is not raised uh, as, an, as an Israeli or as a Jew, as we call them today. He makes this declaration. I know there's no God in the whole world except Israel. He all of a sudden becomes a monotheist. There's one God. I know there's no God but the God of Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. So he's come back and his new conviction, his new proclamation, his new faith. This is the one true and living God. And he wants to generously give. Before he was trying to buy. Now he wants to give thanks. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. I don't want anyone misinterpreting. Or a misunderstanding. This was strictly a gift of God. And Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. And Naaman responded, If not, please let me take two mule loads of dirt that be given to your servant. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but Yahweh. Let me take some of this dirt. For this, the God is holy. Your God, the God of Israel, is holy. And I now worship him and I will take that and I'm going to build an altar. In Syria, in Aram, an altar of which I will worship him. And as we continue, it says that uh, I will not offer any sacrifices to any other gods, only the one true God. So what do we learn from this? Well, I think we learn a few things. You can know that you have that you know God, that you've not just seen him, that you've not just had an experience with him by the transformation that happens. For Naaman... Obviously, he's transformed physically, but he's transformed in heart. We see that he's got a new set of convictions. Now he believes in the one true God. He's not a polytheist. And we're talking about somebody who has never heard the message of Israel. He's probably heard the stories, but he hasn't been trained. He hasn't gone to temple. He hasn't learned and studied the faith, but he knows this is the truth. And he confesses it. And you see the transformation of heart. You see that he now has a worshipful and generous heart. He started off in pride, but now in a spirit of humility, he wants to give. He wants to worship. And he will not hide his faith. He is willing to proclaim it. Just as First Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. So, what are the evidences of our salvation today? And as I share these, these are not ways that we get God or we manipulate God. They're evidences that God has us, that we've committed ourselves to Him as we begin to obey His Word, as we begin to grow in love for others, as our heart changes and our perspectives change, as we sense the Spirit of God, as we do good works, not so that He will love us or accept us, but because He does love us and acceptance. And as we're chastised, as we're disciplined by God, when we find ourselves in sin and God disciplines us, and as we give an account for the hope that is within us. You know, a new movie has come out this weekend called 42. It's the story of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to integrate Major League Baseball. And it's a great show, but they miss a large part of the history of who Jackie Robinson was and what was all transpiring in the background. Jackie Robinson was the, was the youngest of, I believe, eight children in Georgia. And when he was just a year old, his father left his family. And his mother moved them to Pasadena, California. And there he grew up, very poor. And his mother was constantly working odd jobs to kind of just support the family. And he found himself getting in trouble at a young age, found himself in a gang. But there was a, a young man named Carl Downs who was a young minister a small church there in that area in Pasadena. and He began to reach out to Jackie and help him and began to to mentor him and encourage him, kind of pour his life out to him. And he got Jackie to where he committed his faith and and would even uh, teach Sunday school sometimes. And Jackie went on to college there uh, in the area. And, and uh, he just continued to pour into his life as a servant. And many times Jackie would want to go his own direction and Carl would kind of pull him back by sacrificially giving and spending his time and doing what he could to help Jackie. Uh, later on, Jackie, of course, joined the military and was drafted, and, uh, and Carl found himself uh, working in a school in Austin, and he kept that relationship with Jackie. And one of the things that he taught Jackie was the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and he would go over the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again. And uh, one, of the, one of the topics they frequently talked about was, what did it mean to turn the other cheek? And through his influence, Jackie matured in his faith. And uh, when Branch Rickey met him, who was one of the executives for the Dodgers, one of the reasons he was so drawn to Jackie Robinson was because he was a man of faith and he knew it was going to take a man of great faith in order to endure what he was going to experience. And so Branch Rickey, matter of fact, the movie doesn't tell you this either, kind of saw himself as the Abraham Lincoln for Major League Baseball. He felt like God wanted him, had kind of commissioned him to integrate Major League Baseball. And so as they began to talk, he began to go over. A matter of fact, they read, uh, they read the Sermon on the Mount together. And as they talked about it, Jackie talked about how Carl had invested his life. And shortly after that, Carl died, uh, right after he'd done the wedding for Jackie Robinson and his, and his wife. And, uh, he talked about how difficult in his autobiography, he talked about how difficult a time that was. Uh, But he pointed back that one of the primary reasons he was able to endure what he did was because, he said, because of a servant like Carl Downs who invested my life and taught me the teachings of Jesus. He prepared me years on end for what I would face. The truth of it is, there's always been a servant. There's always been someone who's had to suffer before us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant. He's the ultimate one who went before us and suffered. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So as we respond to life's trials and difficulties, we can do so knowing that He has already gone before us, that He will strengthen us and empower us to make an impact for the world that we live in and to overcome what we feel like we cannot overcome in the flesh. Do you know that suffering servant today? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank You so much that while we were still sinners, You died for us. And God, if there's one today that doesn't know You as Savior, I pray that You would draw them by Your power. God, I thank You for the example of this little girl who kept her faith, though she found herself in a foreign land as a slave, as one who was separated from her family, yet her faith held strong. And as one who could have hoped for the death and the destruction of of the one who had taken her away, she still proclaimed her faith. And we read about her today. God, I thank You for the examples throughout history of those who stood, who chose to say, Lord, I will believe in spite of the circumstances. I believe in Your power and Your authority. Your power to not only to heal, but to forgive and to cleanse and to make new. Lord, I pray for those today who don't know You that You draw them by the power of Your Spirit. And Lord, for those who find themselves falling away, serving a God of their own mind and own opinion. God, I pray that we would draw back to the God of the Bible. The God of truth. And Lord, I pray that we enable Him and receive Him to make transformation in our life. To trust Him at His word, To follow Him in prayer. And to so let our light shine that others may see the good work and glorify You in heaven. For those who've not experienced and discovered God today, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit this day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.